Warning, the following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The trauma of mass murderers is felt throughout all of history. The last 30 years have been wrought with mass shooting after mass shooting. Some days, there are even multiple ones across the nation in one day. The United States currently holds the highest amount of gun deaths at the hands of mass shootings. Between the years of 2009 and 2022, there have been 270 mass shootings in the United States, resulting in 1,514 people shot and killed and 980 people shot and wounded, according to every town research. We the people are no strangers to the violence that can be elicited from the sights of just one gun barrel. Mass shootings can happen at any time and any place. It doesn't matter if the place is rural or an inner city. Mass shootings occur anywhere due to the easy access to purchasing weapons in the United States. What spurs people on to target unknown innocents in a crowd is not always specific. Many times it is mental health issues that prompt the level of carnage and violence that is elicited from the bangs of the guns as the shots rain down upon the crowds of unsuspecting victims. Many times there isn't a specific reason for the crime to even have occurred. Those are the hardest ones of all to deal with. Today we discuss one mass murderer who targeted a person he had never met or knew. A congresswoman who had never said or done anything to the shooter. In essence, he had no reason at all to commit the murders he did that fateful day in January of 2011. Welcome to the case of Jared Lee Loftner, a mass murderer who would attempt to kill a member of our very own Congress, and who would murder six people and injure 14 others in 2011. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth, from cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries. These stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. Jared Lee Loeffner was born to Amy and Randy Loeffner on September 10th, 1988 in Tucson, Arizona. Jared attended Mountain View High School and had an ample amount of friends. Not much is known about Loeffner's family life as they tended to be very private and kept more to themselves. Jared was an average student in school he had friends and wasn't an outcast at school. If anything, Jared had all the makings to have a successful future. His family life was described as isolated by neighbors who had grown up with Jared. He was the only child born to Amy and Randy, and so he didn't grow up with other siblings to keep him company. While in high school, Jared would go on to date a young teen by the name of Kelsey Hawks, for a few months who said he was sweet and caring. She
She had never witnessed anything out of the ordinary with Jared at the time of their being together. Things would begin to shift in Jared's behavior around 2006 when he dropped out of school and Kelsey broke up with him. It seemed that the events triggered something within him that was darker than what those around him had believed possible. He was fired from his job at Quiznos restaurant. His personality was changing significantly. The once friendly, kind Jared that everyone knew began to abuse alcohol, drugs, and kept to himself a lot more. Jared volunteered at a nearby animal shelter, but he was asked not to come back. The shelter manager said they told him not to walk the dogs in a certain area, but he would anyway. Jared didn't seem to comprehend anything the supervisor kept trying to explain to him, and he was not receptive to the instructions. It was as if Jared had decided he had his own rules and no one could tell him what to do. Spiraling deeper into drug abuse, Jared was using salvia, marijuana, alcohol, tobacco, psychedelic mushrooms, and LSD. In October of 2007, Jared was arrested in Pima County for drug paraphernalia, and exactly one year later, he was apprehended for vandalizing a street sign in Marana, Arizona close to Tucson. The charges were dropped after he finished a diversion program in March of 2009. In 2008, Jared attempted to get into the army, but he was denied due to openly stating that he used marijuana all throughout the application process. Jared was attending Pima Community College from February to September of 2010. He disrupted classes so much to the point that he had a run-in with campus police at least five times. He was beginning to come off as callous and uncaring. He would also become more and more of a loner around this time, pushing away those who had once been his closest friends. In college, Jared was increasingly becoming more rude and insensitive in class towards a female classmate. One day, when the female student who was talking about her abortion, Jared openly made fun of her, rambled on about terrorism, and laughed about killing the baby. He showed no regret for his insensitive comments or hurtful remarks. Former classmate Lydian Ali remembered, a girl had written a poem about an abortion. It was very emotional, and she was teary-eyed and he said something about strapping a bomb to the fetus and making a baby bomb out of it. It was evident that Jared's mind was becoming more violent in his thought patterns. He was beginning to exhibit more and more antisocial behavior and violent tendencies. The campus police found a YouTube video on September 29th, 2010. Jared, with the username ClassItUp10, posted about Pima Community College. It was a YouTube video Jared posted, which had become a platform Jared liked to utilize in order to spread his conspiracy theory messages and crazed ideologies. In one of his videos, he talked about how the Pima Community College was illegal according to the United States Constitution. 
going as far as saying Pima County College was one of the biggest scams in America. This video happened to get Jared suspended from the college, and if he wanted to return, he would have to correct his code of conduct violations as well as provide a clearance form from a mental health professional that said he was not a danger to himself or others. Instead, he showed up with his parents on October 4th 2010 to talk to campus administrators. In the meeting, Jared told the school administrators he was going to leave the school for good. A few people who feared Jared suspected he might possibly try to commit a mass shooting at the college. Their fear was founded as Jared was becoming increasingly more unstable over time. When Jared turned 18 and became legal age to vote, he would register as Republican. He would go on to vote in the 2006 and 2008 local elections, but would decline to vote in the 2010 election cycle. Jared had always stayed away from the news and television according to a former high school friend of Jared. He never listened to political radio never took sides politically in conversations. However, some people recognized him as a left-wing and even considered him to be a radical liberal. At some point, Jared began to get more involved in political rhetoric and conspiracy theories. He began to have a distrust of the government as a whole. Believing in conspiracy theories such as the moon landing never happened. Theories that the government was actually run by a group of elite people utilizing a belief in the new world order and that 9-11 was an inside job. Similar rhetoric to what we have seen with radio personalities such as Alex Jones and his Infowar channel that has made a large sum of money off of these such conspiracy theories and the modern distrust of government that has pervaded society as a whole. As Jared dove more and more into conspiracy theories, he began to espouse his views against women in positions of power. Eventually, his number one target of hateful rhetoric would become Gabrielle Giffords, a future Democratic Congresswoman from Arizona. Jared highly disliked Gabrielle Gabby Giffords, she was a Jewish woman. Two things that Jared hated, Jewish people and women in powerful positions. And she won the Democratic Party's nomination for U.S. Congress on September 12, 2006. A few who endorsed her were Tom Daschle, Robert Reich, Bill Clinton, the Sierra Club, and Arizona Education Association. In 2008, Gabby was elected to a second term and again on November 5th, 2010. Despite Jared's intense dislike of Gabby, the congresswoman was exceedingly successful in her political career as a fledgling congresswoman. Gabby Giffords advocated a detailed immigration reform package, including modern technology to secure the border more border patrol agents, 
tougher employer punishments for any business that deliberately hired illegal immigrants and a guest worker program when she won in 2006. These things she endorsed and voted on during her first month of being in office. She was for raising minimum wage. Gabby was in favor of the increase of the federal funding for embryonic stem cell research. She endorsed the 9-11 Commission recommendations, voted for new rules for the House of Representatives, focusing on ethical problems and the retraction of $14 billion of fundings to the big oil companies. Gabby was in favor of renewable energy fundings and the creation of the Strategic Renewable Energy Reserve. During the years of her being in Congress, she introduced a bill, H.R. 1441. This bill prohibited the sale of F-14 aircraft parts on the open market. This was so Iran wouldn't have access to them. Gabby was a big supporter of the Girl Scouts, having been one herself as a child. Jared despised Gabby Geffords. In his opinion, she was fake and did not hide his views about his disapproval of women being in positions of power. He also had a lot of anger towards George W. Bush and the nefarious designs of the government. Conspiracy theories devoured Jared. He was obsessed with the film Zeitgeist the movie. Above top secret was a conspiracy theory message board he was a member of. The responses of Jared's posts and comments on the message board were less than kind or friendly. He was loud when it came to his beliefs in the 9-11 conspiracy theories. Jared advocated the New World Order conclusions, believed in the 2012 apocalypse, and many other conspiracies. His obsessive thoughts about these beliefs were incredibly intense, unhealthy, and consumed his mind. On August 25, 2007, Jared went to an event where Gabby made a speech and took questions. It was a chance for her constituents to ask her questions and get responses from their congresswoman. Jared would ask Gabby a question that night that would set the tone for his further hatred and distrust of the unknowing congresswoman. His negative feelings about her became stronger when, in his opinion, she didn't adequately answer the question of, what is government if words have no meaning? Her response did not meet his unrealistic expectations of what her answer should have been. It would be the moment that Jared began to have an unhealthy hatred and obsession with Gabby Giffords. Like a good representative of her constituents, Gabby sent letters to everyone who came to the event that night to thank them for attending and participating. Jared kept her letter he received, scribbling things such as, Die, bitch, and assassination plans have been made, onto the letter. His hatred would only grow deeper for the congresswoman, who never even really interacted with him or had a serious conversation with the disturbed young man. One classmate and someone who hung out with Jared when they were in high school 
was a girl named Tong Shan. She saw Jared in 2010 and was shocked at how much he had transformed mentally. When they would talk online, Jared only asked her question after question, each one weirder than the last, and the questions made no sense. Jared would eventually get aggravated easily, spouting off erratically. Tong has no idea what happened to her former acquaintance to make him change so drastically. Although he never showed signs of being a violent and never mentioned a word about what he was planning to do, his behavior had grown increasingly unsettling and erratic. Gabby Giffers would go on to be re-elected on November 5th, 2010, and following her re-election, Jared was scouring the internet in search of weapons to buy. It was clear that her being re-elected had triggered Jared's hatred into a devious plan of action in his mind. On November 30th, he purchased a 9mm Glock pistol from Sportsman's Warehouse. On January 7th, 2011, just one day before Jared would carry out a shooting that would stun the nation, he called a friend, but there was no answer. He left a voice message. Hey man, it's Jared. Me and you had good times. Peace out. Later. And now, for a quick break. Hi, I'm Bernadette, the host from Murderific True Crime Podcast, coming to you from the state of Maine, USA. We are a bi-weekly podcast and discuss stories from Maine, New England, and all over the world. Our stories focus on domestic abuse, mass murder, familicides, cults, serial killers, kidnappings, and lesser-known cases. Murderific is easy to find on all podcast apps or go to Murderific.com. Give Murderific a try. Remember, murder and horrific equals Murderific. Now, back to the show. Logging onto Mindspace around 4 the next morning, he wrote, Goodbye, friends. Please don't be mad at me. The literacy rate is below 5%. I haven't talked to one person who is literate. I want to make it out alive. The longest war in the history of the United States. Goodbye. I am saddened with the current currency and job employment. I had a bully at school. Thank you. P.S. Plead the fifth. He also posted a photo to MySpace of a handgun laying on top of a paper labeled United States History. It was clear that Jared's mind had fully unraveled at this point. He no longer had a clear understanding of what was truth and what was fiction made up in his mind. His actions on January 8th, 2011 show the full descent into madness that the 22-year-old had fallen into. January 8th, 2011 was supposed to be a normal constituent meeting for the Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords. The plan was to have the constituent meeting in a supermarket parking lot in Casas Adobes, Arizona, in Tucson metropolitan area. 
No one expected that the meeting of a local congresswoman with her voters would end in bloodshed and suffering. No one knew the dark soul would be lurking among the crowd, determined to exact a murderous rampage on the unsuspecting woman who had never even known him. The timeline of Jared's moves on the morning of January 8th, 2011, were as follows. 7.04 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. Jared went to the Foothills Mall Walmart looking to buy bullets, but left empty-handed. 7.28 a.m. Successfully bought ammunition at the Super Walmart on North Cotero Road. At 7.34 a.m., Jared was pulled over for running a red light. He was let go with the warning. He arrived at a Safeway grocery store in Casa Adobes by taxi, where Gabby Giffords was holding a constituents conference called Congress on Your Corner. Jared was fully armed with a loaded semi-automatic pistol, carrying three magazines containing 60 rounds of ammunition with determination in his eyes. 10.10 a.m. Shots rang out. Jared had unloaded rounds of ammunition at Gabby Giffords and anyone who was in his way. Six people would lose their lives that morning, including U.S. District Court Chief Judge John M. Roll and Congressional aide Gabriel M. Zimmerman both well-respected members of the community. Thirteen others were caught in the crossfire and wounded. Jared shot Gabby in the head, but she miraculously did not die. However, she was in critical condition. Brave citizens risked their lives to restrain Jared until the police showed up and took him into custody. As he was being detained, he yelled, I plead the fifth. He was charged in federal court of attempted assassination of a member of Congress, two counts of murder on a federal employee, and two counts of attempting to murder a federal employee. Two days after the shooting, a photo was plastered on the front pages of magazines and newsprints of Jared Loeffner. The Washington Post said the picture was smirking and creepy with hollow eyes ablaze. It was an accurate portrayal of the crazed young man who had taken to shooting upon innocence in a crowd murdering six and injuring over a dozen people who had just wanted to engage with their congresswoman that day. Immediately after being shot, Gabby Giffords was taken to University Medical Center. Remarkably, still conscious, but nobody knew if she would pull through such a critical condition. She was taken straight into emergency surgery, where surgeons had to prevent further swelling and brain damage by removing part of her skull. To give her brain a chance to recuperate, Gabby was put into a medically induced coma. The federal government flew U.S. flags at half-staff from January 9th to January 15th, in honor of all of the victims, as well as for the congresswoman in critical condition. January 10th, 2011, at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 
on the south lawn of the White House and on the steps of the United States Capitol, there was a national moment of silence in honor of the victims of the mass shooting in Arizona. Then, President Barack Obama announced a memorial ceremony on January 12th that Gabby opened her eyes that day for the first time since she was shot. It was a moment of happiness and a week's worth of bleakness and sadness. I have just come from the University Medical Center, just a mile from here, where our friend Gabby courageously fights to recover, even as we speak. And I want to tell you, uh, her husband Mark is here and he allows me the, to share this uh, with you. Uh, right after we went to visit, a few minutes after we left her room and some of her colleagues were, from Congress were in the room, Gabby opened her eyes for the first time. <laughs> Gabby opened her eyes for the first time. Gabby opened her eyes. Gabby opened her eyes so I can tell you she knows we are here, she knows we love her, and she knows that we are rooting for her through what is undoubtedly going to be a difficult journey. We are there for her. Almost two weeks later, Gabby's condition had improved, and she was doing a lot better. She had been in physical therapy and had improved to stable condition. The hospital was ready to release Gabby to Houston's Memorial Herman Medical Center, to the center's institution for rehab and research. She continued more physical therapy and steadily shocked medical experts with her progress. They were expecting her recovery to take anywhere between a few months to one year. As Gabby was improving with her recovery, on January 19, 2011, Jared was indicted on three of the charges and held in the Federal Correctional Institution in Phoenix with no bail. The investigation into Jared Lofner and his motive revealed that inside of his home he had notes stashed with the letter he received from Gabby that she sent everyone for attending her speech in 2007. The note said, I planned ahead. My assassination, Giffords. While he was awaiting trial, it had to be determined whether or not Jared was competent to stand trial. He was taken to a Bureau of Prisons medical facility for evaluation. He was found not competent to stand trial. When the courts learned this, the district court ordered him to be committed for four months in an attempt to restore his competency. Jared was proven to be a danger to himself and to others. For 23 hours a day, Jared was isolated from all other prisoners, only having one hour allotted to shower and exercise. The isolation was due in large part to Jared's declining mental health and unpredictable behavior. While Jared was awaiting his fate, on October 1st, Gabby appeared publicly for the first time on the House floor 
to vote in favor of raising the debt limit ceiling. Everyone sprang to their feet to applaud Gabby, and she was given accolades from fellow members of Congress. In Asheville, North Carolina, Gabby continued to go through physical rehab from October 25th to November 4th. She was having trouble with her speech and lost 50% of her vision in both eyes. In late February of 2011, Jared was taken to the United States Penitentiary in Tucson. His attorney was Judy Clark. Prior to representing Jared, she had been a federal public defender representing suspected murderers and terrorists. Due to the entire federal judiciary of the state of Arizona having ties to Judge John M. Roll, who was murdered by Jared, none of them could hear the case. Motions were opposed by federal prosecutors when it came to moving the case out of the state because of publicity. Judge Larry Allen Burns from San Diego was assigned to preside over the hearing. Appearing in the U.S. Courthouse in Phoenix on January 24, 2011, to hear the charges against him, Jared's attorney Judy asked for Judge Burns to choose a plea on Jared's behalf. A plea of not guilty was made. Prosecutors made all future hearings to be moved back to Tucson. No objections were made. On May 25, 2011, Judge Burns ruled Jared was not competent to stand trial. He had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and was being treated at the U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri. On September 28th, the judge asked Jared if he understood the charges against him. After an outburst in the courtroom, Jared was carried outside. Reportedly, he was irate because his mission of killing Gabby Giffords was not successful. There was an emergency motion to involuntarily medicate him, but it was denied by the district court on both June 14, 2011 and September 15, 2011. Jared was allowed to refuse any antipsychotic medications, but there was an exception for the safety of others. If he needed to be tranquilized, that would be allowed. On January 22, 2012, Gabby announced her plans for resignation to work on her recovery. Her January 25th resignation was very emotional, with colleagues and leadership of the House speaking to her valor and vigor. Then President Barack Obama would say of Gabby, Gabby Giffords embodies the very best of what public service should be. She's universally admired for qualities that transcend party or ideology, a dedication to fairness, a willingness to learn to different ideas, a tireless commitment to the work of perfecting our union. That's why the people of Arizona chose Gabby, to speak and fight and stand up for them. That's what brought her to a supermarket in Tucson last year so she could carry their hopes and concerns to Washington. And we know it is with the best interests of her constituents in mind 
that Gabby has made the tough decision to step down from Congress. Over the last year, Gabby and her husband, Mark, have taught us the true meaning of hope in the face of despair, determination in the face of incredible odds. And now, even after she's come so far, Gabby shows us what it means to be selfless as well. Gabby's cheerful presence will be missed in Washington, but she will remain an inspiration to all whose lives she touched, myself included, and I am confident that we haven't seen the last of this extraordinary American. Gabby would also say of her decision to resign, I have more work to do on my recovery, so to do what is best for Arizona, I will step down this week. I'm getting better. Every day my spirit is high. I will return. Her words were a sign that while Jared Lofner may have tried to end her life that day in January, he had never come close to killing her spirit. January 7th, 2012, Jared Lofner was finally found competent to stand trial. Jared's forensic psychologist testified he had symptoms of depression since 2006, and in 2011, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. She believed under the medications he could stand trial and would agree to plead guilty. Jared took the guilty plea bargain, which in turn spared him the death penalty. He pleaded guilty in federal court to the following crimes. The attempted assassination of U.S. Congresswoman Gabrielle D. Giffords. The murders of federal employees, U.S. District Chief Judge John M. Roll, and Congressional aide Gabriel M. Zimmerman. The attempted murders of federal employees and congressional aides Ronald S. Barber and Pamela K. Simmons. Causing the deaths of Christina Taylor Green, Dorothy J. Morris, Phyllis C. Schneck, and Dorwin C. Stoddard. Using a Glock pistol to injure Bill D. Badger, Kenneth W. Darushka, James E. Fuller, Randy W. Garter, Susan A. Heilman, George S. Morris, Mary C. Reed, Manvel Stoddard, James L. Tucker, and Kenneth L. Veter Sr. And now for a quick break. Do you ever wonder why on just random days you're just in a really crappy mood all day long? I'm always in a crappy mood all day long. Well, there's a very good reason for that. On our podcast, A Date with Murder, we are going to break down what horrible true crime event happened on this date in history. Join me, I'm Kelly. And I'm Ashley. As we go on this depressing, but sometimes hilarious journey together. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Amen. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> uh, we have a podcast here that might provide that answer for you. It's called, what is that banging in the background? <laughs> my cat's eating. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> she, 
she can't hear you. And how did he even get a hold of the refrigerator shelves? Now, back to the show. Jared also confessed that he knew he put the following people in grave risk of death. Carol A. Darushka, Robert C. Golick, Daniel Hernandez, Mark S. Kimball, Patricia R. Meesh, Emma E. McMahon, Owen A. McMahon, Thomas J. McMahon, Sarah M. Reka, Faith M. Saljeber, Roger D. Saljeber, Doris Tucker, and Alexander J. Villick. The six who lost their lives all passed away on the scene except Christina Green. In honor of the victims of the mass murder that day in Arizona, here is a little bit of what we know of the victims. Christina Taylor Green, 9 of Tucson. She was with her neighbor, Susan Heelman, born on September 11th, 2001. She was published in the book Faces of Hope, Babies Born on 9-11, page 41. Her grandfather was former Major League Baseball player and manager Dallas Green. Dorothy Dot Morris, 76, a retired secretary from Oral Valley, wife of George, who was wounded. John Roll, 63, chief judge of the U.S. District Court for Arizona, named to the federal bench by President George H.W. Bush in 1991. Phyllis Schnick, 79, homemaker from Tucson. Doran Stoddard, 76, retired construction worker. He died from a gunshot wound to the head, and his wife, Mavie, was wounded. Gabriel Gabe Zimmerman, 30, Community Outreach Director for Giffords, and a member of Giffords staff since 2006. At 24 years old, Jared Lofner was sentenced on November 8, 2012, to seven consecutive life sentences under the terms of the plea agreement followed by 140 years in prison. Jared Loftner was sentenced for the attempt to murder Gabby Giffords, the murders of John Roll and Gabriel Zimmerman, and causing the deaths of Christina Green, Dorothy Morris, Phyllis Schneck, and Dorwin Stoddard, who were all attending an activity provided by the United States. He was also sentenced to the max term of 20 years in prison for the attempted murders of Ronald Barber and Pamela Simon. Jared was sentenced to the maximum term of 10 years in prison for injuring Bill D. Badger, Kenneth W. Darushka, James E. Fuller, Randy W. Gardner, Susan A. Heilman, George S. Morris, Mary C. Reed, Manville Stoddard, James L. Tucker, and Kenneth L. Veter Sr., all through the use of a Glock pistol. Before he received the sentencing, there were quite a few emotional statements made to him by family members of victims and survivors. Gabby Giffords and her husband, retired astronaut Mark Kelly, 
stood in front of Jared for the first time. Mark would just recently become the junior United States Senator from Arizona as of the 2020 election, continuing where his brave wife had left off. Mark was quoted as saying, Gabby would trade her own life for one you took away that day. Every day is a continuous struggle to do the things she once was very good at. Mr. Loftner, you may have put a bullet through her head, but you haven't put a dent in her spirit and her commitment to make the world a better place. You tried to create for all of us a world as dark and evil as your own. But know this and remember it always. You failed. You have decades upon decades to contemplate what you did. But after today, after this moment, here and now, Gabby and I are done thinking about you. Gabby gave her husband a kiss. They joined hands and walked away. Jared never said a word as his mother Amy, who cried while listening to the victims and their families. According to neighbors and those who knew Jared's parents, they were devastated by what their son had done to so many innocent people that day. Suzanne Heilman, the survivor who accompanied nine-year-old victim Christina that day, Jared took her life, also stood in front of Jared. She was nervously shaking as she stared at him. He locked eyes with her and she stated, We've been told about your demons about the illness that skewed your thinking. It's all true. It's not enough. You pointed a weapon and shot me three times. And now I walk out of this courtroom and into the rest of my life, and I won't think of you again. By pleading guilty, Jared waived his right to any future appeals and could not change his plea to an insanity plea. He had to pay restitution fees of 19 million, 1 million for each victim. Jared is not allowed to take any money in exchange for his story, as he should never be allowed to make any money off the pain and suffering he caused that day in January of 2011. Thanks for listening, and remember... You never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room. We all know that serial killers, pedophiles, and rapists litter the online world looking for victims, while they sit anonymously behind their computer screens. With the internet being the number one way we all communicate today isn't surprising that even our society's monsters have figured out a way to utilize it to make their hunt for victims far easier. For a serial killer, trolling online is a convenient and easy way to find the victim and lure them to you, just like the spider and the fly fable of old. Join me next episode as we look at the internet's first serial killer, John Edward Robinson, 
a man so heinous, he was quoted as having once posted on an online forum as a victim of his, stating, If you're interested in a master who is really great, write him. He is a great master. His email addy is eruditemaster.email.com. It was a trap set for any potential victims to easily fall into by a man who had spent the majority of his life as a criminal. Robinson was much like the spider in that old fable, luring his victims to him, pretending to be someone he most definitely was not. Unfortunately for many of his victims, they would see through his veneer too late, and they would lose their lives. On the next episode of The Jury Room, we will discuss the life and crimes of the very first internet serial killer, John Edward Robinson.